All right, friends, well, if you have your Bibles, open in them to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 10 to 17 as we continue to walk through <clears throat> this book here this morning. And, and let me just throw a phrase out to you and, and just, you know, just think about how it hits you. Following Christ is hard. Following Christ is hard. Do you feel that? Does that ring true in your life? Have you ever found it challenging? If you claim to be a follower of Christ, I know that some of you in here uh, may not, but for those who do, uh, does that ring true? Well, as we've walked through uh, this book in 2 Timothy, uh, Timothy or Paul has been writing to Timothy and, and saying, hey, Timothy, as you uh, continue to grow in your faith, as you live life uh, in the context of the church, as you uh, fulfill this ministry of church planting, there is going to be great difficulty. And he speaks of this in the context of basically three concentric circles that move their way out. So uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about that middle circle saying, hey, Timothy, it's going to be hard because of what goes on in your own heart. You're a broken and rebellious sinner in need of God's saving grace, and there will be things like fleeing youthful passions that you will need to engage with by the power of the Holy Spirit because you're going to be problem number one. But then last week we talked about that middle circle where he says, hey, the problem is also going to come from within the church. You know, the very churches you plant, there are going to be false teachers that arise. There's going to be fighting that comes out of it. Uh, you know, we are all, just FYI, a bunch of rebellious sinners, and we don't shake this flesh until the day that we are completely uh, or made complete in Christ Jesus. And so until then, our sin is going to splash on each other, and it's going to be tough. But then today what we're going to be talking about is this third circle uh, on working our way out where Paul is telling Timothy, and it will also be hard because you are ministering and existing and living in a church surrounded by a culture that doesn't follow Jesus. And so that outside circle will be, hey, you're, gonna, you're going to receive uh, some arrows from outside of the church. And essentially the road of following Christ is a road of persecution. That's what he holds before Timothy today. And, and in many ways, I have this picture of you ever watch a war movie, right? And you're, and you're running, they're running down a path and all of a sudden the bomb goes off and they're knocked off their feet. And then you have that high pitched squeal that represents like a concussion. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe you've experienced that yourself. Maybe not a bomb, but, but something else. But, 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 you know, for Timothy, Paul's saying, Hey, the bombs are going to go off and you're going to feel disoriented and, and, and it's going to be tough. So what does it look like to continue to follow Christ in such a context? So 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to start by reading together uh, verses 10 to 13. So follow along with me. Paul writes this. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim of life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that have happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and in Lystra and persecutions I endured Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Let me pray for us as we keep moving this morning. Lord, these are just three challenging weeks where we are faced time and time again with this picture of, of maybe a countercultural picture that says following Christ is hard. And Lord, there are many in our congregation who are already feeling that. Sometimes the, the outside of the church uh, arrows are coming from their own families. And Lord, sometimes it's coming from work or school or whatever it may be. But, but Lord, would you uh, strengthen our hearts as we 
listen to Paul's good and inspired by you words that he gives to us this morning. So Holy Spirit, would you uh, work through, most importantly, your word and, and, and also guide mine uh, as I speak. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, well, friends, how do we follow Christ as we're living out the realities of that outer circle, as we experience some of those challenges? And really, uh, this passage divides itself into two sections. You'll see at the beginning of 10, it says, you, however, and then at 14, it says, but as for you. Uh, Really, those are two of the same Greek terms, just interpreted a little bit uh, differently there. Uh, But basically, the first set is saying, hey, let's look backwards and consider what you've followed up to this point, Timothy. And then uh, it says, now let's look forward, beginning in 14, where he says, now continue to follow God's word and what he says. And so that's going to be the outline. How do we continue to follow Christ when it's hard? So the first one, we need to consider first what we followed. Now, this term followed that we see here in verse 10 uh, is one that literally means uh, walking behind someone as they're going somewhere and literally walking in their footsteps. Now, in this context, as we're going to see, it talks about both teaching and the way we live our lives, so our formal and our practical theology, as Laurel just said. And what Paul interestingly says here is he says, remember, uh, you have followed my teaching, my conduct, so on and so forth. And so we might read that and be like, wow, Paul's a little narcissistic, right? A little self-absorbed, right? Like he's all that, right? Uh, So first of all, I want to go outside of this book just to let you know how Paul speaks of of why he calls people to follow him. And uh, one reference would be 1 Corinthians 11.1, where he says, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. In other places, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And so even as he's reminding Timothy of what he's followed in Paul, he's saying, he's saying, remember, I've been following Christ and you've been following behind me. And so let's go and do this together. So he's truthfully really calling him to follow Jesus. But what he's also doing is he's giving Timothy two objective evidences of his genuineness of faith. He's saying, hey, uh, my life, my conduct matches my teaching. We're going to read that here in just a second. So the first sub-point we're going to talk about is we're going to look to follow faithful lives. But then the second thing he says, he says, look at the evidence of the fact that I've endured suffering and continued on in following him. And so the second thing we're going to look is following the road of persecution. And so first, let's look at this picture of following faithful lives. He looks at Timothy and he said, hey, if you need some evidence as to why you should keep going, uh, just follow uh, and, and watch and observe and walk in the footsteps of those who have followed Christ before you. He gives some examples. He says, you have followed my teaching. Friends, as we look to follow Christ and as we really are mentored and discipled by others, one of the first things we need to wrestle with is, are they actually teaching us to follow who Jesus Christ, as presented in the Bible, truly is? And if that's happening, there there should also be this outworking of this picture of conduct that he says here. Conduct is the whole demeanor of the way of their lives. He says, consider my aim of life, which is the spiritual ambitions which motivated him and made life meaningful to him. This is different than these false teachers that he's comparing himself to who are following the ambitions of money and of power and of influence. He keeps going. He goes, you know, consider my patience. You know what patience is? You can translate it as a tolerance or long-suffering towards aggravating people. (laughs) Friends, patience truly is a fruit of the Spirit. If you haven't figured it out now, it's something that we cannot just generate on our own ability. I'm just more convinced of it now than I ever have before, starting with my own life. 
He also says, consider my steadfastness, which is patient endurance in times of circumstances. And he says in Timothy, if you don't, if you're confused, you're like, okay, really? You know, he says, look back and contrast how I've lived my life in following Jesus with what it says in verse 13, where it says, evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so let me just say this. Part of the Christian life is, and how he has designed the church is for us to, yes, primarily follow Jesus. But he's given us the church to be discipling one another, to be linking arms with one another and saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And so I'm going to keep talking about this picture. We need to consider who and what we're following. Because who and what we are following are formative. And when the heat of persecution comes, it usually squeezes out what we've been following. And and if it's something other than something headed towards Christ, we will probably flag in the journey and, and, and that's it. And so let me just say this, evaluate who and what you follow. It's not neutral. The influencer that you follow, the social media that you follow, the books that you read, the, the, the people that you hang out with, they're either going to be pointing you to the person and work of Jesus or they're not. And it's forming you in whatever direction they're headed. I've heard others recently say, hey, uh, I'm not quite sure now that we've come out of this pandemic and we're still figuring this out, where I fit in the church. And I think this leans into what Paul Tripp would call, you know, sometimes when we think of our activity in the church and our ministry, uh, we either think of um, our vocation or our location as it pertains to ministry. We usually say, okay, I don't have a place because I'm not vocationally paid by the church, or locationally, I, you know, we think of I serve in nursery, I teach in Sunday school, or, or I'm a deacon or an elder or whatnot. And if we don't fit one of those two categories, we say, well, the church doesn't have any use for me, I might as well give up. And, and I would just say, first of all, we always as a church need to grow. We're figuring those things out to say, hey, how can we evaluate gifts and plug people in and challenge But there's a reality where the 750 souls who claim to be members and attenders of our church, we're just not going to know all of the gifts and skill sets and know exactly where to plug them in. But you know what God gives us in Scripture? He says, you are a part of the body of Christ. And the most basic form of what it means to be the church is one another grabbing someone else and saying, follow me as I follow Christ. An easy way to figure out where you fit in the church is just to begin to be hospitable. We have so many new people. The new, the new members class has 28 people in it. Invite folks over for dinner. After the service, do not find your old friends necessarily. Look for a new face. Younger people, man, hound the older folks who have been around the faith for a long time and say, can we hang out? Can I figure out what it looks like to be married, to have a kid, to walk through suffering, to just drink coffee with you and figure out how to do your taxes in a godly way? Like, whatever it may be. Just don't make it weird. Christians can kind of make it weird too. We can like have a dating weird relationship thing and be like, well, you know, you want to meet? Like, uh, just, just pursue someone and say, help me know what it looks like to follow Jesus. Reach out to someone and say, come on over and just watch us observe life. We're not perfect. So let's be one beggar helping another know where to find bread. Here's the second sub-point here is, is Paul also calls Timothy to follow the road of persecution. And I don't know if you read this, but verse 12, where it says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Friends, oftentimes and in our culture that's uniquely um, you know, uh, geared towards uh, if it's not comfortable... Uh, then it must not be right. This is counterintuitive. 
in our faith, we feel like sometimes if, we, if we're working out our faith, but then we face some heat from somebody, it's like we must be going the wrong direction. I'm going to start backing off. But Paul's actually saying that's not at all what that means. Paul says, hey, remember what happened to me in Iconium and Lystra, and that's basically pointing back to Acts chapter 14. As Timothy is following Paul, uh, basically he sees Paul, because he's preaching the gospel, get drug out of the city and stoned to the point where he was so unconscious that the people said, all right, he's dead, let's leave him alone. And the disciples circled around and like, we've got to basically uh, do something with his body, and Paul pops up, and he goes, let's go back into the city, Right? He's like, recall that. That's the road that you're now on, Timothy. It's not indicative of you headed the wrong direction. In fact, in a way, it's indicative of you maybe headed the right direction. Now, there's a phrase here. I wish we had more time to to work through it, but it says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. First of all, we need to talk about that word all. It doesn't mean sometimes. It doesn't mean maybe, maybe not. It doesn't mean if you're just a really exemplary Christian, then there's going to be persecution. He's like, no, all who desire to live godly lives will be persecuted. The other term I want to pick up on is this term desire. You know, it doesn't say all who accomplish absolute perfection in living godly lives. It just says those who have that desire. And what I would argue elsewhere is that desire to live a godly life is something that is grace-generated. It is not something that we can just come up with on our own. Hebrews 11, Romans 8, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so there's a reality of our regeneration, God taking a dead heart and making it one that is alive to God, is that our heart will continue to grow in our desire to live godly lives. And now that's something that he will work out over the course of the rest of our walks of faith. But that persecution, it says here, comes... For two reasons. First is our union with Christ. It says desire to live godly lives in Christ. Friends, when we, when he regenerates our heart, when he uh, showers us with his grace, when we respond to him in faith, Paul doesn't actually ever in his writings call us Christians. He actually calls us being in Christ. He's saying what happens by grace is this union that we have with Christ, where what happens to Jesus happens to us. And usually we focus on the, the awesome aspects of that, resurrection to new life and justification and, and so on and so forth. But here, that union with Christ brings persecution, which is also sharing with Christ in his suffering. Now, sometimes that doesn't make sense to us, but let me give you a, a picture of how I've seen this in my life before. And, and um, maybe you've heard this story before, but when I was doing some chaplaincy work with the New York Giants, uh, there was an away game. And it was here in Philadelphia. Now, I had not yet been introduced to the wonders of Philadelphia sports fans at that point. Uh, and a couple of days before that, we were doing a, a Bible study, and there was some coaches and their wives who were there who were believers, and we met. Uh, and there was one wife of a more prominent coach. Her name was Maria. Uh, and, and so we met, and that was great. Well, I go to the game, and I'm sitting in the friends and family section for the Giants, and, and we're up there, and there's this woman who starts kind of creeping her way down the row, and I'm like, oh, no, she's going to sit next to me. And the reason I said, oh, no, is she's got a wig on, and she's got sunglasses on. I mean, it's night. Uh, she's got a fur coat on. I'm just like, this is going to be a trip. This is going to be the best game I've ever been to in my life. And so she sits down, and I'm like, hey, how you doing? You know, kind of the niceties. And she goes, oh, hey, Anthony, it's good to see you again. And I'm like, who are you? You know? And I was like, Maria? She's like, yeah, they can't know who I am. You know? And, and I'm like, what? And she goes, you don't understand. If they know that I'm the wife of this coach, like, they won't leave me alone and bad things will happen to me. I was like, no. 
that wouldn't happen. She goes, honey, I'm from Philly. I know what goes on. I'm like, okay, all right. And no kidding, like, uh, 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 you know, the third quarter, uh, there was a fan above a woman who was sitting with her boyfriend wearing an Eagles jersey. She was wearing a Giants jersey. And the guy just took his beer and went, and just dumped it on her. Now, why did Maria think that they were going to hate on her uh, at that moment? Or why did that woman get the cup of beer dumped on her? Was it because they know her character and it's pretty poor? Right? Was it because they, they're like, well, she's not a very nice person, why not? No, it had everything to do with what she was affiliated with. She had a Giants uniform on in sorts, or at least, you know, the one did who had the beer part on them. And so, really, they were persecuted for being in the Giants in that time. And friends, when we become followers of Christ, we put on the Jesus jersey. Let me read you Jesus' own words about this in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, he's talking to his disciples, know that it hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Friends, sometimes we are persecuted because we have our Jesus jersey on, because we are simply following him and for no other reason. And here's the good news, John 16. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And I think there is uniqueness that comes when we actually suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ, that we also experience his peace in a more deep way than we could ever imagine, that we will never experience outside of walking through persecution. We're identifying with him uniquely in his suffering. And here's the second thing we need to talk about is this picture of godly lives. Those who desire to live godly lives. Did I miss something? There we go. Godly lives is kind of this picture of, you know, over the course of our following Jesus, there is a desire for us and our lives to look more and more like Jesus's, to conform to his. So for those of y'all who like the really cool ice cubes, I don't know if you've ever used that, but you pour water in it and a little mold and you put it in the freezer, and it comes out, and it's conformed to that ice mold. And in a way, it's saying that is the deep desire of our heart, that we look more like Jesus, that we are more willing to to submit to who he is and how he calls us to follow him. Friends, in a way, that's really offensive to a surrounding culture who doesn't have faith in Jesus. John Stott says this. He says, the godly arouse antagonism in the worldly. And I think part of that is because as we look more like Jesus, it becomes somewhat of an indictment for those who shake their fist at us. It's a mirror of sorts, saying this is God's righteousness, not that we generate ourselves, but that he generates in and through us. And it becomes offensive. And so our instinct is to say, okay, I'm going to leave this world then. But John 15, he goes on and he says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, there's this picture, and you'll hear this said, that that if we're a follower of Christ, uh, we are in the world. He does not ever see fit to remove us from the world of persecution or from a Christian witness. But he says, while you're in the world, you are not of the world, you are of me. Stott unpacks this a little bit better. He says, we are called to be both in the world, but not of it. Those who are in Christ but not in the world are not persecuted because they don't come into contact and therefore into collision with their potential persecutors. 
But he goes on to say, those who are in the world but not in Christ are also not persecuted because the world sees nothing in them to persecute. The former escape persecution by withdrawal from the world and the latter by assimilation to it. It is only for those who are both in the world and in Christ simultaneously that persecution becomes inevitable. And so, friends, maybe if I can say it in short, just because persecution comes, he still calls us to go to the away games. (laughs) He calls us to be engaged for the sake of his glory, for the sake of loving other people, for the sake of introducing them to the lover of their souls in Jesus Christ. All right, so I'm going to kind of take a TV time out, since I'm sticking with sports here, uh, and, and, and give just kind of this sidebar, because there is a reality, and we heard it during Persecuted Church Sunday, it said a couple of times, hey, but we don't really know what persecution feels like in America, and we, we kind of continue to gloss by that. And, and we do, it's true, live in a place where just simply saying, I follow Jesus Christ, is not going to turn up the heat on us too much, in and of itself. Maybe if we start talking about heaven and hell, people will kind of furrow their brow. But, but let me just give you the one area where I'm hearing forms of persecution uh, continuing to grow. And I've heard it in the last couple of months from students in school, from teachers in schools, from people in the medical community, and from people who are even in this, the general business world. And it, and it has to do with how we desire to conform our lives towards him, particularly in the area of sexuality. Now, let me be clear on what exactly I'm saying here, and I need to be clear of where we stand as a church when I say this very loaded term for our day in sexuality. And this is really where we land as a denomination as well. But here's what we believe, and I would call this a graciously historic Christian ethic. Scott Saul's actually coined that term, but let me say that again, a graciously historic sexual ethic. And here's what it is, that God designed sex in both thought and action to be exclusively for the context of the covenant of marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. Let me put it far more simply, as Rebecca McLaughlin does in her book, The Ten Questions Facing Christianity. Opposite sex marriage is set apart as the only place for sexual intimacy. Now, that's the historic part, but, but what we need to wrestle through is first the why, right? Why do we hold to this? Well, first, uh, because, one, it's our Creator's good design touched by the fall, but it is his good design. Second, in Ephesians 5, we actually see this picture of marriage as the most profound picture of the gospel that we have from a human perspective, and that includes everything that goes with it. And so the reason the persecution can arise in many people's lives is adhering to this, it pushes against our cultural call that has in 10 years moved from tolerance to acceptance to now celebration. And what I would just, or celebration of different forms of sexuality. And what I would just say is, I don't believe we can call ourselves Bible believing followers of Christ and hold that position. Now, let me give you the gracious part a graciously historic Christian ethic. I am not one who can speak to the struggles of things like gender dysphoria or same sex attraction, as some of my friends, many of you in here, who those previous words I just said hurt deeply. I can't do that. But the Lord, over the course of the years, has given me opportunity to disciple and walk alongside of other men in particular who have walked this road. One man in particular who I I mentored for two years, he came out of the gay community and he said, Anthony, I need your help to help me walk with Jesus and know what this means. And, And friends, over the course of that time, I'll be honest with you, I began to not like the church and not like Christians very much at all in part because I saw his struggle and his grief. 
I saw him say, hey, Anthony, I shared my story with a bunch of guys. They won't talk to me anymore. They're scared to death of me. I also saw him come back and say, hey, the Bible does teach against sexual immorality, but that's more broad than the struggles that I've had. And I'm seeing in the church people overlook forms of sexual immorality. And in particular, he named unbiblical divorce and remarriage. He said, I also see people form support groups for other types of sexual immorality very easily, like struggles with pornography. But man, when I talk about my struggle, it's an abomination. And they don't even want to talk about it. One day he just calls me in tears. And he said, I'm so lonely in the church. I can't handle it anymore. I'm out. I say this because I don't want us to mistake the persecution we may experience uh, because we're being unloving or jerks. That's something that's okay. It's not. The church historically has been a horrible place for people in my friend's position to struggle because of the categories I just listed. And so can I offer to you, um, you know, of course the road is what I just shared, but there's two ditches that we can fall into. And I know that there are some of you who are walking with your children right now through this. I know there are some of you who are walking with your friends through this, with loved ones. And so here's the two ditches I would just encourage us to avoid. First, well, the two ditches are confront and conform. So avoiding the confront ditch means we take a posture that separates us from a sexually damaged culture, forgetting that we ourselves are sexually damaged. We must extend kindness and friendship to those who don't embrace a biblical sex ethic. And we must never engage in negative posturing or caricaturing. We must be a safe place to wrestle where we're hospitable. And I would just argue that I don't believe, my opinion in reading Scripture is that we're actually not out to change the morality of a non-believing culture, but rather there to introduce them to Jesus. Here's the second ditch to avoid, is conform. We have to avoid the conform posture, and this means we have the instinct to follow and be discipled by the world and not God's Word. We must honor and champion and obey the Creator's designs and at all times in a spirit of gentleness and respect, even if we lose friends and we influence fewer people, or if it's going to be beamed on YouTube in about 30 minutes and brought back up for the rest of your lives, right? We must be okay with living in light of our thoughts and ways, or the thoughts and ways of another being higher than our own. And in the end, capitulation to culture is neither faithful nor is it a fruitful missionary method. Let me also say, name this. If you get all that right, You're perfectly holy. And if you love the sexually broken perfectly, you're probably still going to be persecuted. You know why? Because Jesus Christ himself was a single 33-year-old man who never gave in to any form of sexual temptation. And at the same time, he perfectly loved the sexually broken. The woman at the well, the woman caught in adultery, the prostitute who wiped his feet, having dinner with sinners and tax collectors. Yet guess what happened to him? He was still killed on a cross. So let's talk briefly about what it looks like to move forward. All right, so we remember what we follow, but, but how do we then continue? Right, right now, again, we are off the map. We are not living in a Christian culture. Whether you think we still are or not, we're not. We're not. And so how are we to continue ahead faithfully? 
Well, 14 to 17, he goes on, but as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. In short, what he's telling Timothy is, hey, when the bombs are going off, when you're just totally not aware of your surroundings and where to head, I've given you, God is saying, I've given you my word. This is how you orient yourself to move forward in faithfulness and following me and and remind yourself of the grace and who you are in Jesus. He tells Timothy this, he says, remember the sacred writings that you've been acquainted with since your youth. He's talking about the Old Testament there. And then in 16, where he says, all scripture is God breathed, he's basically pointing to, and and I can unpack this for you later if you wish, but I believe he's pointing to the Old Testament and the New Testament writings that we have, the 66 books of the Old New Testament, written over the course of thousands of years in 40 different authors. And here's the two things I think he tells us uh, to encourage us to keep going. One, he says, continue in trustworthy words. And the reason I say that is it's it's intentional that Paul tells Timothy, um, All Scripture is breathed out by God. This is the doctrine of inspiration. So even though there are human authors over the course of thousands of years, he's saying the Holy Spirit is the one through through the Holy Spirit, or God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired the authors of Moses and and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and, and so on and so forth, and Paul, to write down God's Word in unique ways, in different contexts, and in different genres. But the reason I think he's saying that is, These words are trustworthy. They're trustworthy. They're unlike the shifting culture around you. Friends, on the hard road that he calls us to, if persecution is a part of it, isn't it important to know that we can trust the words of the one who is guiding us? You know, think about if you're called to the hard road of some sort of um, surgery, right? Whose words is more important to trust? Or, or, or who are you going to trust more? This friend of yours who's also a surgeon, who you know where he went and got his medical degree, you know he's consistent in his practices, you know his record? Or your buddy sitting across from you with a butter knife saying, let's get this thing out, right? <laughs> Which one? Which one's more important to listen to? You want the trustworthy word of your friend, the surgeon. And so that's why he's saying this to Timothy. You can trust a God who does not change who is perfectly loving, right? He sent his son Jesus to die for you and prove that love. He is perfectly just at the same time. Jackie Hill Perry says this in one of her books. She says, Holiness and goodness should never be determined by the whims, wishes, and standards of a created thing or even a whole culture, especially when that culture's ideas are so easily influenced by the deceitful hearts within it, as well as its overall mutability, which means changeability taking different shapes in conformity to its era. God defines God. And here's the second and final thing that he says, is continue in effective words. Friends, this is the most unique book you will ever read. Because this is a book that reads you. As you read it, the Holy Spirit works with it to change your heart, to change your mind, to change your life through the power of the Spirit. And he says it here at the end. It is profitable for teaching and reproof. So this is the intellectual stuff, for teaching uh, right doctrine and theology, and also reproof is correcting what is in error. And then the second, 
is it says, for correction and training in righteousness. That's correcting your life and your orthopraxy, right? How you practice, out, practice your theology when it's in error. And then training you what it looks like to live a life that is pleasing to God. Friends, without God's word, we don't grow. We don't grow. We remain spiritual infants. It's impossible. The whole purpose of it all is to make us complete in Jesus and equipped for every good work that he has created for us to walk into. And here's the final thing that I'll say. is in verse 15, the most important thing that scriptures do is it makes us able, or it's able to make us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 11 that God or Jesus has delivered him once, but he also knows that this is the end for him. And the reason in places like Acts 14 he can pop back up and run into the city knowing that his life might be on the line is he knows that actually this world is not all there is. That there's the promise of eternity that this book points us to. And this is the only way to understand what that looks like as it reveals Jesus to us. And so in many ways, uh, it, it really tells us what we've already sung this morning. What will keep us to the end? Not just the end of this life, but even to, well, through all of eternity. It is Jesus Christ, our hope in life and in death. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, there's so much in the words of Scripture. This document written 2,000 years ago is just as applicable today as it was then. And so, Father, for those who internally um, are experiencing grief or frustration or anger from any of this, uh, Lord, I pray that that they will wrestle this out well with you. Jesus, I pray that you would be near uh, the ones who are struggling this morning. Father, I pray that you would cause us, as, as we may face persecution, just simply by having the name of Jesus, by wearing your jersey, if you will. Lord, would you, uh, like you did with Paul, cause our hearts to endure till the end? And Lord, would you make us a people of the book? God, My fear is that we're drifting further and further away about even caring about what your word says, much less allowing it to work on our hearts and change us and to point us to the true lover of our souls. And so, Lord, would you accomplish your work in us today, we pray in your name. Amen.